0: to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. This podcast is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Visit Booking Protect to find out how you can offer your guests a better buying experience, greater peace of mind in a ticket buying environment where on sale dates are earlier and earlier and life is more and more likely to get in the way and how working with Booking Protect can create a new stream of revenue for you and your organization. To find out more, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Now, today's guest on the Business to Fun podcast is likely someone you have been waiting for me to talk to because I know that on my short list of people that I was really, really excited to have on the the show, Mike Guffrey was at the very top of the list. Now, many of you know Mike from Twitter, where his Twitter handle, MJGuff, um, chimes in on pretty much every topic related to tickets. Mike is a lot like me in the idea that he doesn't take a lot of the BS or status quo and just accept it right? So we go into a tremendous amount of stuff. This is again, really one of the longer podcasts that I've done so far. Um, some of the stuff we talk about is great and it's no holds barred. I mean, we talk about uh, storytelling. We talk about content. We talk about right and wrong way to allocate your budget. We talk about branding and service. We talk about pricing, um, sales philosophies, market philosophies. Uh, we talk about, um, storytelling and content i mean i think i even said that before risk management we talk about live nation and Ticketmaster and their role in creating the ticket buying experience and environment that we see we talk about a little bit about consolidation deals we cover the new program season ticket program that the oakland a's created um i th- you know i think it's like a one of would be considered a long um uh, twitter chat uh so i think this is going to be one that you really really learn a lot from i think this is going to be one that you really really gain a great deal from and it's one that i really really am happy that i had a chance to talk with so this is episode 21 of the business of fun podcast with mike guffrey from sweet hop i want to welcome mike guffrey from uh, to the show mike what's up man
1: how's so much dave how you doing
0: oh i'm good i'm good you know i'm uh all over the place, like I was telling you beforehand.
1: But I, I want
0: to thank you for being on the show. Um, I almost said your old company, Ticket City, in the intro. <laughs> so that's why. That's why I studied. But now you're now you're in a, a new spot. Um, would you mind telling everybody what you're up to these days, in case because I know you have a pretty wide audience on social media and um, people hopefully know who you are already.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. First, obviously, appreciate having me on. This is awesome. Um, you know, I, I love to to do this stuff, jump at any chance I get and um, tell the story of, of the industry and some experiences. So um, no, I, I left Ticket City back in um, around March, I guess, and got back to my roots. Um, stuck on the, still away from the team side, but um, stuck back in the premium seating uh, field, which is where I kind of grew my career from the team side. So I'm at a company called SweetHop. Um, where we're a, a national marketplace for luxury boxes and suites, and we list our inventory from partnerships with teams and venues as well as companies. So it's exciting. I'm I'm excited to take everything I kind of learned from the secondary and the the retail side, and now moving to an aggregate and a little bit more of a of a drilled down focus on the suites, which is what I did for about 15 years prior. So. That's where I'm at. Just moved to Denver and 300 uh, days a year of sunshine, so can't complain.
0: Yeah, and uh, I know that I told, probably told you this before, um, but I'll tell you on, online so you can't really duck it. It's like, you know, I sh- I'll be there soon um mm-hmm. <laughs> i'll be like i'll be uh, you know so just let make, make up the couch and you know put the beer in the fridge and i'll be there
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh like i said we live uh downtown right near Broncos stadium and a, and a lot of stuff to do. i know you got uh, a young son so there, there's a lot of a lot of fun at downtown denver can't complain
0: yeah i so I think we start we'll start talking here because i'm I'm almost certain that this is going to probably be one of the uh ticket podcasts that probably people are going to be most anticipating uh because, uh, mainly because I think that they know that we will probably have a lot of interesting stuff to cover and probably not going to hold many punches here. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as much as an, a, a ticket podcast could be anticipated, I think this is going to be one of them. Um, so I want to start out by talking to you about one of our favorite subjects, right, which is uh, the marketing and selling of tickets. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this, I guess maybe as we're recording this, it was last week, um, the Oakland A's. Came out with a new ticket season ticket program, and I don't have the name right in front of me. But basically, what it is is they, you get a subscription to their tickets for eighty one games, and I think you pay three hundred dollars. I think it is for it, um, and then they say you can customize your season ticket model, which on the surface probably sounds great, right? Um, but in practice, I've started to have few reservations. I know that you have had um, have some ideas on it too is this a fair place to jump off for us? And if so, you know, give me a little bit of your ideas and your thoughts about this trend and this new program that the A's are offering up.
1: No, I think it's a great place to jump off because I think in fairness, um, you know, the industry is changing, right. And and everyone's having trouble selling tickets and well, not everyone, but most will say um, in whether it's concerts or teams or venues. So, you know, there's, there's some creativity needed and there's some adjustments needed. I think I, I dug into it after we actually talked last week a little bit about what their program is. And I've never been a huge fan of a full subscription model because I felt it always kind of cannibalized um, you know, your marketing, your sales, what you could do with your pricing, where you could maximize. I think in fairness to the A's, this is a little bit different because it's more of not just a... You know, buy a ticket and you can come whenever you want. A lot of it is added on to season tickets, so they are being creative. They are trying to change a model which needs changed, and I do give them credit for not just saying, "Hey, nineteen dollars and you can come to every game." I think it is different than that, so I think they are on the right path. I'm not so sure that I, um, you know, can look into the pricing and give a good, um, you know, really description saying, okay. You know, if you buy a full or a 40 games um, plan or a half season plan, you can come to every other game um, and sit in that area. I think that is a different model than, hey, $29 and you can come to every game. So um, personally, you know, in baseball, I think it's different than concerts. I think it's different than hockey and and even the NFL because of the um, just sheer amount of tickets. I think it's something that each team needs to look at if you're not selling tickets Try something different. I mean, um, we all know that baseball is having a, a really hard time. But at the same time, I would—if you're going to do a model like that—I would at least like to see it mixed in with um, some retail <laughs> and some pricing and some risk management. So, um, if it's something where they're going all in and, and you end up just paying them a few bucks and you get to go to every game, I'm against it. If it's you buy a 40 game plan and you get some benefits to it. Um, I would be more open to it, but only if we're doing everything else right, which is risk management and retail, which I'm a huge fan of.
0: Yeah. So the pro, you know, I pulled it up here. It's called the A's access thing, and it starts at, two, at $240 for the 81 games, which mm-hmm. I sort of, you know, and then looking at it, it's like you get all the games, you get a half price concessions, uh, seat upgrades, parking benefits. I know there's merchandise benefits and everything, right? Mm-hmm. I think, and, on the surface of it, like, you know, again, the surface level, it's a it's a good idea, right? And, I, you know, again, you and I both are always like, uh, be more creative. And I guess mm-hmm. my concern, and it, 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 would, it wouldn't, hasn't been validated yet, is really where I'm going, is that it becomes a, a reason to be lazy about it. It just mm-hmm. becomes another form of aggressive discounting. Mm-hmm. and i think that's what makes this an interesting case study because like it's like hey they have um, worked really hard because i mean i think we can all agree that you know the the stadium that they play in is um could use a little attention it's um you know it's old and worn down and it's not the best venue so they have had to be creative and create uh standing room or sro um you know general admission areas um you know and i and i think as long as it maintains that thing where it's like you can, you know, the base floor, 240, you mm-hmm. get standing room seats. It's great, I, I you know. But I want to see how they elevate people to this because, mm-hmm. again, if it's not just the 240 thing, how is that different than In We Go, which I think I would say has had more, done more damage to what the Braves have been building in Atlanta than almost anything. Where it's like going, basically any event in Atlanta, you can get for what 19 or 29 dollars a month, and that's mm-hmm. just that sets an awful precedent. precedent for brand value,
1: or, yeah, or, and, and that's where I would say that's where I'm hoping with with the A's, they've they've gone a little bit different, right? I mean, it's two two hundred forty dollars. It's not, um, and, and I guess it's a little hypocritical because two forty technically can equal twenty five dollars a month, you know, um, but that just limits you to there that club, I believe, or that one area. Um, what I like that the A's have done is they've incorporated it with other tickets. So if you have a half season for free, you basically get this add-on of you can come to every game, but you just sit in this area. So I do think it's different than just saying, hey, we're gonna go out with a blanket, $29 a month program, and just say, hey, you can get a seat, whatever's available, we're gonna say it's the upper deck but we all know i mean you and i have been in the business for years that means they're going to put it, try to make it look good on tv and you're probably going to get an upgrade um so i do like the transparency that this is what you get you do get some upgrades um, if you still buy a full season ticket you get better pricing or if you buy a half season so i do like that they've taken a step away from that subscription come to as many games as you want because a lot of that The biggest difference is that includes multiple teams, multiple venues, concerts, you know, in the other cities, whereas this is just for their game. So, yep, I I agree. I think it's we don't want to become lazy. I think that is a concern. We've seen that with other aspects, right, where first people started selling just to brokers because it was easy and not really managing the process. And then they went to consolidators because everybody else was doing it. And if this goes well and you start to make money um, a little bit, you know, are you going to end up cannibalizing? And I think that's a fair question. And I also think the other fair question really at the end of the day is, is it a needle mover? Um, and that's where it's going to end. If you can sell, you know, 5,000 of these $250, 300 packages where it's just standing room only or part of a club and, you know, at the end of the day, 10,000, even it's not really a huge needle mover. Um, But is that important to them? Or is it getting the atmosphere and getting folks into the, um, into the building? And then again, just to reiterate, it is, you know, nice that they aren't just cannibalizing everyone. It is a service they offer for, for all their tickets. So I like that it's taken a next step. I do agree with you. It's something we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but we both know too it 's a copycat league, so we 'll see how many people jump on board
0: yeah and i and I feel as you were saying that, probably some of my criticism or i guess apprehension because it was not criticism but, you know I applaud mm-hmm. them for being creative my sure. uh, my concerns and my apprehension about the idea is that copycat thing because we 've all <laughs> seen uh programs or ideas that have been done very well in one place then get copycatted and done. Uh, Poorly in other areas. And mm-hmm. I think one of the themes that has kind of come up over the course of like these first like 20 or 25 episodes of this podcast I've done is like a push to create, to have and encourage people to be much more creative in the mm-hmm. way that they're you know, they're selling and marketing their tickets, which mm-hmm. I know that like you and I both share as a sort of like a core theme of like what we do is like the creativity, especially when it comes to marketing and, I, you know, this, this is getting a lot of press today, um, you know, and over the last week or 10 days, two weeks, I'm sure it'll continue for a little while, but my thing, you know, overall, I think that the emphasis on marketing, you know, baseball is, you know, a key candidate for this right now, but NASCAR and some other ones, you know, to just be better at marketing is Mm -hmm. you know, really just necessary. And I know from your experience on the team side, one of the things you were really successful at was changing the way that you were marketing and selling suites and lo- and premium opportunities to people. You know, so I'm curious, like, at, you know, kind of now coming from the side of the secondary market and working on premium sales. You know, what are some of the things that, like, you know, you would even look to to encourage teams? Um, you know, a couple steps that you would give them, and be like, look, this is something I, you should do that would make you more effective at your marketing.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, um, you know, nowadays it's almost boiled down to don't even <laughs> do any marketing outside of branding. If you're a team, um, when it comes to retail and by retail, I mean, you know, selling individual tickets and what, you know, I've realized from the team side and then moving to the secondary side is that a lot of it is, I guess, to simplify it around scalability. And so I've seen the budgets on the team side and I've seen the budgets on the secondary side and it comes down to the retail. And so for a team, you really need to focus on branding. You really need to focus on customer service and you, you need to get that, that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know story is a good way to put it, but you need to get, um, your team out there with content, interesting articles, stuff that, you know, fans want to see. And so you've seen it over the years where we've been so tied as an industry to TV money that our marketing, you know, quite frankly it sucked um it was awful because we couldn't and and, and we've broken down this wall but you couldn't tweet out goals <laughs> you know replays of goals you couldn't um post on facebook um you know a, a touchdown you uh, whatever it is a home run and in some aspects you can't we were pulling things off of youtube because we wanted to direct them towards uh, our sites and we were not embracing twitter because you know the, the TV stations wanted it on their Twitter feed or they wanted everybody going to, the, uh, to watch the game and watch the replays or they had tie-ins with post-game shows. And so here we are, 2018, we're finally seeing, I think the NHL actually hired a girl who had done um, just little clips of every single goal <laughs> that was scored. It's finally like she had a huge following. It's like, let's bring her on. And so from the team standpoint,
0: and let me, let me but, bust in too here when sure. you talk about the NHL because, and I don't have the uh, lady's name in front of me, but they hired a um, a, uh, a lady who has a strong background in digital marketing, you know, and mm-hmm. focusing on the digital side. And, and it was like, uh, shoot, and I'll probably, I'll try to link it in the show notes. But her background was in creating sort of viral content and focusing mm-hmm. on developing customers across, a, you know, digital platforms and you could see it reflected almost immediately in the way the nhl has approached their marketing and i Mm -hmm. would say that it has improved tremendously i mean the thing they did during the finals with snoop dogg that was awesome Mm -hmm. you know and and i'm sure that brought in new people i'm
1: almost 100
0: certain it did and it was something that like seems obvious only in retrospect
1: right and that's where i think the focus has missed is We've been so focused as an industry on marketing of control, controlling our brand, controlling our message, controlling the content, and nowadays, everybody wants to see it where they are, and I could go on forever about, and we'll touch on it, I'm sure, later on Premium, of finding the customers where they are, um, and or letting them find you where they are, and we have people out there, we have fans that are craving content, and we focus on sending out emails trying to sell them tickets when we have these retail outlets that handle all of that for us. And so, you know, you can take your whole marketing budget. If if I was running a team, put it all into content and drive as many people online as I could. And, you know, hire the salespeople and some marketing into selling your packages and upselling and, you know, use the, the B2B sales, which is still important. And then utilize the secondary on retail, which is basically a free service. Um, and then use some risk management but that's where i think we've missed it we've been so tied to tv and we've been so tied to all these rules that in in fairness to the teams i mean that's where you're making your money they're paying you hundreds of millions of dollars so but you know at the end of the day are we looking at just this year or should we go back and figure out a way to make content and grow the game grow the customer base and you know play this for the next 50 years or are we just playing it year by year and I think that's been, you know, one of the biggest issues is that we're not looking long-term.
0: Yeah. I I mean, and I know that like some of these things, it's almost going to sound repetitive because, you know, no one knows this, but, you know, like we have had a long, like probably have a years-long text chain that goes back and forth and email chains about all these ideas. But the mm-hmm. idea of long-term customer value of, you know, creating a customer base that is resilient despite mm-hmm. wins or losses um, right. You know, these things, they, they are missed because and when you brought up telling a story, I was like, well, well you, you must have been reading our, our emails and our texts recently mm-hmm. because, you know, that's like a really a key thing. And it's like a real missed opportunity. Right. Um, you know, we saw it with the huge ratings. Uh, was it two seasons ago when the Cubs and the Indians played in the World Series? Right. That was mm-hmm. the biggest World Series in many, many years. And it, I mean, it had and it had everything to do with the Cubs and the Indians, but not because it was the Cubs and the Indians. It was because of the stories around the Cubs mm-hmm. and the Indians. It was the two teams that had not won anything in the longest period of time. It was the the fan base, the celebrity fan bases. It's the um, the culture around going, you know, Cleveland and Chicago. It's all these things, and I sometimes think that like it's this transactional nature to what marketing and customer service has become. It's at the detriment of the storytelling and these long-term connections. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell the story pretty regularly. I'm sure you've heard it probably a a bunch of times, and now you're going to hear it again. Is you know, like every time I go to Europe now, and you know, and I go 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 to London or Paris for business, I'm amazed because I don't see the same American sports brand imprint that I Mm -hmm. used to see when I would go. Right. It used to be I I couldn't go a block without seeing a Red Sox hat, a Cubs hat, a Yankees hat, um, even a a Marlins hat. Right. My God. Um, You know, now it's rare that you'd see stuff. And, you know, I know they tell me how big of a cultural global icon LeBron James is. I've been in seven countries in the last year or seven, three or four or five countries in the last year or two. um, And I have not seen a LeBron James jersey or anything outside of the U.S., Mm-hmm. right um you know and and it is just really tearing down and eroding our ability to generate revenue which when you brought up the tv money right is very important because the tv money's here today but it's right. not guaranteed to be here forever and if you start if you continue to allow your fan base and your ratings to erode because you're not doing uh, you're doing what passes as marketing but not what is real marketing you know, where is that going to leave you in five years or in seven mm-hmm. years when these things run out?
1: Which or I, next year.
0: Yeah. Or next year. Right. <laughs> e- exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. it, to me, that's like a, a huge issue.
1: Right. And that's where I, you know, one of my, you know, kind of philosophies, I guess, over the, the past 10 years or so has been that long-term value of the customer. And I think that's where, you know, you want to balance, um, I guess maximizing revenue during a season. I mean, you'd be silly not to. You're making a run for the championship or your team's doing better, you're on the rise. You don't want to just lose money, leave money on the table, but you need to balance that because if you overprice and fans leave, they don't come back. They never come back. They realize they have $10,000 in their pocket and they could go on vacation and, you know, pay for, you know, some college for their kid or put a down payment on a car. It's You know, they, they realize that and you lose them, it's expensive to get them back if at all, which rarely, I mean, the numbers show you don't get fans back or you don't get customers back when you lose them, but it's due to overpricing and maximizing. And we're even seeing now where we're overpricing to the point we're not even selling out in situations that used to be, you know, just sell out instantly, um, We never had a problem selling out some of these huge games. And now the narrative is, well, we're maximizing revenue. And that's a fair point. And okay, that's great. You maximize revenue. You sold less tickets for more money. But guess what? You also had 500 fans that could have been at the game um, that might come next year. And so what is making an extra $500,000 or even maximizing revenue in a game could be $150,000 compared to long-term health, um, growing the game. And so I think that is a a large disconnect and, um, something that needs to be looked upon, but it probably won't be until that TV money at least comes back to a reasonable number.
0: Yeah. And you see the, um, conversation has even changed a little bit and, and they in no way are suffering for television money, but there was like a slight, and I think it was just on a percentage base, uh, Pull back a little bit in the money from the Premier League and you saw the uh, – almost instantly the conversations change in the Premier League about mm-hmm. the way those teams do business. Um, it, and it, it, it's probably almost like going to take like some kind of catastrophe to get people to, to wake up because mm-hmm. you really – I think you're, you're maximizing your short-term revenue at the cost of long-term business stability, which – I guess you know if this is obviously more of a sports and entertainment business thing, but if you just look at the wider business culture in America, right, it seems something that's consistent across uh, the country right now, which is like, let, let me—I don't care what at what cost it is—I'm going to um, maximize my short-term, you know, value, and I mm-hmm. think that like you know some it, it work like you said it works until it doesn't, right, and you know, you maybe didn't have 500 fans Make you know, you had 500 empty seats for the NBA finals game one. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. And you maximized, you made more money than you ever did on the things, but how much did those, how much over time are those 500 seats? And if you take them over the course of like, you know, a seven game series, so those four games, right? 2000 fans not being there. How much is that mm-hmm. going? How much is that going to cost you over time? Sure. Right? Because if you don't get people indoctrinated now, um, or like they're only there because you're winning, That you're very you're in a very fickle place, right? You know it's that, and that's what you know. That's always been like sort of the mantra that people say, and it's a lazy one from my point of view. Winning will solve everything, Mm -hmm. but we see that that that's not true. I mean, you don't have to go very far. What am I five miles from Nat's Park, right? Mm -hmm. And you know the place is like they've had won ninety five games on average, I think, for like the last five or six or seven years, and and they they struggle right? Like Mm -hmm. they don't, they don't, they don't have sold out stadiums. They don't, you know, they sit in the middle of the pack, but they have like several of the highest, you know, most exciting players in baseball. It's so winning, isn't going to solve these things. It's like you have to have like some kind of vision and leadership and, and, and so much of it seems like that's missing or maybe I'm wrong. I don't, you know, you tell me.
1: No, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's where part of the issue comes in as we're waiting for this unicorn, um, to drive in and, and drive ticket sales for us, and it just doesn't exist. But if it does, it's short term. How many teams win a championship every year in the four major sports? Well, include college, you know, it's five. Um, how many teams see increases in ticket sales because the team turned around? I and mean, it's a handful. So it is, you know, nice when things work out and you can. You know, put your stamp on, hey, we're doing better. We're going to redo pricing. We're going to charge more. We're going to maximize revenue. And that's nice. But hey, take a look at the long-term planning there because even if you do have some uptick because you're winning, and you will, but it won't solve everything, you haven't solved any long-term issues. And the reality is we're not even attempting to solve those because we're so focused on maximizing revenue in the short term. And we've seen it time and time again. And even in the past decade, we're seeing new buildings aren't solving a lot. Big markets, winning teams, <laughs> new buildings, huge markets have had issues. Um, so it's not it's not a cure-all. And I think it goes back to years of not really focusing on that long-term growth, maximizing revenue, and quite frankly, being scared of what's next, which was the internet 20 years ago. And now it's utilization of all these tools. We're afraid of control. We're afraid of, um, you know, what comes next. And yeah, that's great. Hopefully, everyone's a winner, but it's not going to happen. So,
0: yeah, and hopefully things stay the same is the mm-hmm. other is I think the other hope, which we all know does <laughs> n- never happens.
1: Um, right <laughs>
0: now, when we talk about pricing, too, and this is going to be uh, spoiler alert. This will be where everybody rolls their eyes because I'm going to ask this question specifically as it, um, and I guess it will um, show my underlying bias. But it seems like, and I know that I can ask. Um, How many uh, executives would I be able to ask 150 sports executives this question? And they all would lie to me through their teeth. Um, it's like how much of your pricing decision is based on bad data that you get from the secondary market.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> but so yeah. much of the, so many of the pricing decisions are made based upon the secondary market, and not necessarily even what the secondary market tickets are sold for. I can tell just because I know what the real numbers are, and I know what the numbers look like on the internet, um, and I know that like most, in most cases, I would say more than eighty percent. Um, even if some organizations are sharing data with the teams, they're not giving them all of the data or all of the relevant data. Um, you know, they're, they're limiting what they're sharing. Um, but a lot of these pricing decisions are made based on what is the perceived price point on the secondary market, which in, you and I both know, and I'm sure I hope everybody recognizes at this point, isn't always what the true selling price is, right? Mm-hmm. Because StubHub or SeatGeek or... Ticket now or Ticketmaster uh, resale or any of these uh, Vivid—they all have a inherent bias and need to promote the best data or the best price for their point of view, right? So if they want to tell you that something went for an extremely high price because it makes it look like it's in demand, mm-hmm. but as the rights holder, as the content producer, right, you have to know that, like, hey there are nobody buying um, a seat behind home plate for a, um, a Marlins versus Rays game for 500 bucks on the secondary market. It's just not right. happening. And so for like people to try to price to beat the secondary market, to me, it's short-sighted because it, it, it does two things, right? Number one, it, it burns a lot of goodwill that the team has between them and their fans. But number two, it doesn't recognize the fact that the buyer that's going to the secondary market is, in many cases, entirely different than the one that's on the pr- that's coming to the primary side, and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be to me. And I know I've been saying this now for the better part of fifteen years. Um, it, do- it shouldn't be an antagonistic one because it should be a synergistic one. Which, if you want to go back fifteen years, synergy is a huge word. Um, it, but and I know you have worked on both sides as well. You know. What can we do to kind of help um, smooth those waters so that like instead of fighting against each other, we can work more productively, get people to work more productively together?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's – That was a long
0: monologue I went on too, so I'm sorry.
1: Wow, that's good. I mean, that's – you know it's the whole point of um, the industry right now as far as ticketing goes is that it's a struggle with the pricing and the economics of it. So – I think uh, long um, answers and long questions are really what we haven't been addressing or we haven't been looking into, is because it's hey they're going for more on secondary market so let's um, you know let's charge more let's charge this we have all these analytics uh, departments that are taking a look and they're saying okay hey these prices are going for this and we sold this but the problem is it's inherently flawed to look at a retail model and think you can bring that into your own and charge more based off of what you've seen on digital outlets, which would mostly be secondary market. The reason is really twofold. One, if one person cancels or two people cancel because you raised your prices, your whole model's blown up. So you can even say that you're taking that into consideration, but if I have 50 seats in this section that is popular and it's 10 season ticket holders that all have five seats and two of them canceled, 10 seats just opened up, that drives the market down. So now all of a sudden those people go to look online and they're paying $100 and people are having to drop those for 90 or 80 because there's all these seats on the market. It doesn't take into account that some people resell to offset costs, not because they're brokers, which was one of the biggest myths of the industry is that any of your season ticket holders, except for the large corporations, all resell their tickets. We need to understand that. Everybody resells tickets, whether it's online or whether it's with a partner. Very few individuals say, hey, I want to go to 81 games a year. Hey, I want to go to 41 games a year. Or even in the NFL, I want to go to all eight because there's Thursday night, Monday night, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night games, and not everybody can go to every game. There's a game on Christmas Day. And so people buy those packages for a certain reason. So by looking online and saying these prices go for X, Y, and Z, it's flawed from the beginning because you're not taking into account people are reselling or any sort of change in the market is going to blow that model up completely. Um, The other aspect of it really is that what you touched on is that, is this even a real price? Somebody going in and buying really expensive um, because LeBron James is coming into town for the first time as a Laker can drive that price way up, can drive that model up. A schedule change the next year. LeBron came in on a Saturday Saturday, in march which is huge for the nba now he's coming in on a monday in november that changes everything and so these models they aren't consistent with an economic supply and demand curve that is as simple as you know time is in the day it's just a very it's not you can just look at these numbers and say okay hey we made an average of 70 dollars a seat on the secondary last year we were only making 60, we lost $10. That's not the way it works, not even close. And then lastly, it doesn't work out with timing because some of those pricing are based off of, of, of if you looked at the chart of how secondary um, market sales go or even on a Ticketmaster, Live Nation, any of uh, the primary outlets, during the on-sale date, the sales spike through the roof. Then they go down and they you know, kind of trickle along a little bit And when you get outside of the, or within a week of the show, they start to pick back up until a couple days. If you don't follow that model, it doesn't matter on pricing. You can charge whatever you want in the middle. You're not going to sell more tickets. Nobody buys tickets for Taylor Swift when they go on sale January 1st and the shows, you know, July 1st, that the six months in between there, the sales are slow, whether you're primary or secondary. So that affects the model. And so, just by looking at regular sales data, you've really just put yourself at a disadvantage, and I think that's a huge, huge part of the industry and a huge part of the problem
0: yeah, and it's interesting the way you explained it to me because I want to look back on my uh, experience working with Broadway because Broadway was the, like, was unique in that way is that like wicked plays eight shows a week, right and so the demand and the, and the amount of volume you would move through you know Your office, or through the box office, or whomever was selling the tickets, was going to be a little more uh, consistent, and it was going to—you know—you were going to have a lot less of dips and valleys, right? Mm -hmm. And it was mainly because there was eight shows a week. But if you're, you know, if you're selling to the Taylor Swift thing, this is what I've always struggled with with the verified fan because it just—it flies in the face of everything that, you know, all the data I have, right? All of the marketing knowledge I have, all of the um, cons- the data of consumer psychology and consumer behavior, it, it all flies in the face of everything that I know about customers' behavior. Right? It's like, oh, we're going to drip things out, uh, we're going to, uh, and we're going to just keep playing with this thing until the last minute. There is, like you said, a specific period of time at the very start when the tickets go on sale that, that everything's hyped. Right? If you've done mm-hmm. your job well. Then there is probably the couple weeks before the show. You know, you have probably a two to three week window before the show, depending on the artist, where it really, really becomes hyped up again. If you put your tickets on sale a year in advance, you have 11 months where nobody cares, one way or the other. You know, it's not necessarily something you're you're, you're not worried, consumed with at all. Because if you care, you are likely already have your ticket, right? right? And you know, and it's just a um, you know, it, it really just is this inconsistent um, thoughtfulness, and in how do how do you sell? It's like almost like you're trying to neuter your own demand because one of the misconceptions, or I guess one of the the false arguments that gets thrown out there about this, the relationship between the primary and the secondary market is that, um, and especially this will be helpful for like a lot of my European and international listeners, is that the secondary market has no value, and we've you. Are, brought up the retail side earlier in the us and canada most of the time i would say a great majority of the retail sales are done through the secondary market and Mm so trying to price and manage the inventory in that manner is counterproductive because the thing is it's like the the secondary market is working to try and flatten out that demand curve you know because i can't tell you how many hundreds of millions of dollars that all of these uh, sites spend on digital advertising and branding and other forms of marketing year round to sort of, so that there is con- a, a little bit of a consistency in the sales cycle. Um, you know, it, it's you know, it, it's like another example to me of people shooting themselves in the foot.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. the The whole point really is that you're looking at a transactional side that spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year in marketing they find the customers where they are, they pay increased dollars to advertise to folks based off of their likelihood that Google or Facebook says they are to purchase, and they're spending money to do that. So that is another aspect to pricing that is missed is that can you ch- if the secondary is charging $70 on average, as an example, and you're charging $60, could it be as simple, and it's probably more complicated than this, but could it be as simple as they can charge more because they're spending more to market correctly or they're spending more to digital markets? So that is another aspect I didn't even mention before, and you bring up a good point, is that not only are we missing you know, the pricing economics of buying early, that's when you can maximize pricing, the sales kind of filter off there, how it doesn't work because Um, A few cancels, a little bit of change in the schedule can blow up the model completely. Um, You can really uh, tick off your season ticket holders who need to sell a handful of games to be able to afford their season tickets or even want them. But then also, yes, you're not spending $100 million. It's got to be more than that. A year in digital marketing and catching people and doing what Google, Facebook and as much as rhetoric as there has been about the data In in those industries, there's a reason why they do it. They're able to sell it and it works well. And now they can sell it for more because they're providing more and more data. So, without those outlets, could that alone drive your your model completely off? And the answer is probably yes.
0: Yeah. And you brought up another interesting thing because you're talking about, oh, like maybe the secondary market sells a ticket for $70 and then you, um, and the primary side would sell it for $60. And so, like, oh, well, we lost out on $10. And the This is a question I ask a lot of times when I'm working with clients, or you know, just anytime anybody asks me for advice. It's like compared to what, right? Well, mm-hmm. you know, they made ten dollars more than we, we. You know, they made ten dollars from us. Well, compared to what? Like, how much did they call? How much did they charge to make that ten dollar difference, right? Like, you know, what cost did they incur, right? Yeah. Um, how much did they know,
1: spend just on the pay per click?
0: Yeah. How much? did – Well, or and this is really the the probably even the bigger point is like how much. Money or how much opportunity are you missing out on because you're trying to squeeze out that last ten dollars, right? Because we know that early money is more valuable, and you know, money in hand is more valuable than money the day before the show, right? Mm-hmm. So, who's incurring the cost of not having you know revenue come in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, these things aren't none of this stuff is easy to do, right? It's not cheap, you know, and so by trying to squeeze out an extra. Because if it's $10 on $60, I mean, that's 15% or so. I mean, that's not an insignificant amount, but what's the opportunity cost in not selling the ticket, right? It's, you know, until the last minute. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't get $70 because maybe now you have to dynamically price it down to 30 because now you're panicked, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe you have a situation where, um, you're an outdoor event, so like a baseball game, an outdoor concert, a football game, whatever, and the weather goes crap, right? Like, oh my God, there's going to be a potentially a blizzard coming through. So then instead of getting $60, now you don't get anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you, all these factors come into play, right? And, and they're all, it's always like going, well, somebody's stealing my money. And I go, well, compared to what, right? Like, you know, if you, if you have somebody has guaranteed that they're going to buy the ticket, right? You've encouraged someone to uh, invest early. Um, you what have you lost because you get you get you have revenue right that you can you know you can book you have um, confirmed that people you know people are going to be there so then now you have the opportunity to market to them in advance number one to build anticipation for the event number two um, hopefully to develop like begin building a relationship so that they'll come back more and more um, you know you, you can learn all these kinds of different things so like you know some of these incremental uh, percentages of revenue right or like some of these decisions they seem, I, I dare to say, stupid when you think about all the factors and all the other things that they're, they seem neglectful of.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where I think it, it comes to a to, to a really just boiling point is that there's a lot out there of, I guess, economics, just to put a blanket term on it. I mean, yes, if you've sold the tickets already, that's a completely different model than you haven't. And that's where you get into risk management. And so that's another way the, the model can blow up. And you have to take these things into account, which is the team performance goes down, which we talked about earlier. Winning solves everything, but it doesn't. Um, or just the uh, baseball has weather issues. Hockey, you certainly could have some poor weather cities where fans, it might the weather might get bad and you, you know, you're not selling those day of game tickets. And so there are many ways that the model can blow up. Selling them, early selling them often selling them for a good price is the way to go without worrying about um, you know, losing nickels pennies on the dollar at the end of the day you're really fighting and you're really upset at some of the secondary market because you've seen some of these shows or these finals that go for huge money But we're not taking into account all of the tickets and all of the shows that sell for under face value, especially when it comes to sports where there's so many games. And so it's really an unfair way to look at it, saying every time a ticket sells for more, I lost money. Every time it sells for less, well, too bad. (laughs) You know, it pretty much balances out. Brokers aren't making 50 percent margins. You know, they're businessmen here making smaller margins than anyone out there thinks because they only focus on the major shows. And so if you're taking that into your pricing model, then you've lost, you're not doing it correctly. And I think we can agree that a lot are doing it that way. And it's it's probably not fair to the fans. It's not fair to your best customers who should be getting the best price and shouldn't be punished because they need to sell a couple games just to be able to have the right to give you all this money up front.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, and it all, it's, you know, it's its always just crazy, right, uh, to me. And I always point to the example that, like, hey, look, if you are really, really, really um, concerned about, number one, getting the tickets to your fans in the most uh, fair way, right? And, you know, making sure that there's not a lot of stuff on the secondary market. And there's, you know, all these different arguments that get thrown out there. There's a tremendous model out there, right, that's uh, been around for 20 25, 26 years, right? And that's the model that Pearl Jam uses, right? Which is like everything's run through their fan club. Um, you, if you're a fan club member, you get a tremendous, you get the opportunity to buy tickets to any shows you want, right? And it's doled out according to you know your fan club number, how long you've been a fan in the fan club, all these different things. And only after the fact do tickets go on sale to the larger public. So when Pearl Jam goes on tour, you don't see tickets on the secondary market, right? Um, I know that it doesn't get done because it's hard work. Right. Mm-hmm. And it also requires to be um, considerate of your customers and your fans. Mm-hmm. It, re- it requires uh relationship building, you know, it, it demands a whole lot, um, you mm-hmm. know, it, but it's there, right. If, if you want, sure. if you want it, it's there, right. You just, but mm-hmm. you have to be willing to do it, you know? So, um, you, you know, so like a lot of times when people are like, going, Oh, well this, that or the other, it's like, I believe there was a freakonomics episode uh, a couple months back where um, David Marcus from Ticketmaster said that, like they basically, I'm probably paraphrasing here, they do the dirty work, right? And I think one of the big issues that's bubbling up and becoming more and more evident these days is the lack of consideration for the customer and mm-hmm. for the fan. And I and I think that's really, really a big issue that needs to be addressed because, like we've, I think, like we started with, like you can only treat your customers like crap like you don't care for so long before they say you know what you're right you don't care i'm out and they Mm -hmm. don't come back
1: sure yeah and i think that's where you know it, it gets into i i think there's a infrastructure cost on the primary side that people um miss out on and in fairness to Ticketmaster, live nation and even the teams to a point which probably not much it's more on the the actual infrastructure side is that there are costs that these companies put together to be able to offer you the service of offering you tickets online. Um, you know, the, I don't think the general public understands the finances. And it's not cheap,
0: right? I mean, these are big not, operations if, in, if nobody recognizes that. They're
1: huge. Right. And so there has to be a service fee and there has to be um, some sort of finances going back You know, even if it's not a huge company and some of these ticket companies are small, they're still not doing it for charity. They're trying to make money. The issue is, are you putting um, any sort of rules, regulations, um, fighting for laws in place because it's for the customer or is it for you? And that doesn't go for um, just any primary market. That goes for teams, that goes for fans, that goes for everyone. Everybody wants to maximize, and I think that's fair. But at the end of the day, if we are going to do these things like mobile entry only or we are going to push, there are infrastructure costs to that. I would never argue that back. But let's make it be so it's for the fan. Let's make it easier to enter the building. I mean we're creating friction, um, whether it's in the buying process, whether it's in pricing, whether it's in renewals from teams, whether it's in trying to buy tickets from a primary site because there's a lot of those now. Um, we know sea involved and the you know flash seats and some different ones there Um, are we doing are our decisions for the customer or are we trying to maximize revenue that quite frankly it it doesn't mean that um, we should be maximizing that revenue because as fair as it is to say that, that all these primaries put a ton of money in infrastructure and marketing so do the secondary sites and they put more into marketing and they're able to cross you know, market sell and use great data. And, and really, because they're selling nationally, they have much larger budgets to follow you all over the internet, to buy the best data, to serve you up ads that you're only interested in. Um, and that's what the consumer wants. So you know, as long as we're doing what's right, as long as the customer has the end, or we have the customer in mind as the end goal, I think it's fine. I also think it's fine that everybody makes their money. I have no problem with service fees. Um, You know, the teams aren't going to cut in on ticket price to Ticketmaster. They have every right to try to make money. They have thousands of customer service reps and outlets and infrastructure. And so there's going to be a cost. It's just on the price of the tickets, I guess, and the delivery. And are we creating too much friction? And are we fighting over nickels when we really should be just taking care of the customer?
0: Yeah, no, and I, and I know you know my philosophy on this thing too is like, as far as maximizing revenue is number one. I want everybody to make as much money as possible, right? I mean, that's like sort of that's sort of a gig. <laughs> it's like ma- is like helping people make money and, and grow their markets here. I mean, that, you know, I, so I don't ever, you know, look down or apo- ask people to apologize for being trying to make a profit, mm-hmm. you know, or you know. But I think one of the things that I struggle with. And one of the things that you, you struggle with and one thing that everybody should struggle with really is, you know, if I'm trying to maximize every touch point, right. Which is sort of the, um, the model these days, right. Like, so if I can, mm-hmm. I want to my, I want to charge you a hundred dollars for a t-shirt or you know, maybe I'm exaggerating. So $40 for the t-shirt, right. And $50 for the hat. Um, and I want to charge you $15 for the Budweiser, um, you know, my belief has always been that, like, if I don't try to maximize every touch point on you, I can make more money off of you. I can and I can make you thank me for it. Right. Which mm-hmm. is like sort of like the original sin of like starting in nightclubs, which was like, how did I? we, you know, our task was to come up with how we raise our per check average uh, 25 cents. Right. And I found out the quickest way was like to ask people what kind of uh, liquor they liked in their drink. Right. And that was like increased the, the average check a dollar, right. Which ended up almost adding a half million dollars in pure profit to the bottom line. in you know, six months, um, you know, and I think that sometimes when you put the customer first, it doesn't mean like you're you're you know, you're kissing profit goodbye. It means that you are um, being thoughtful in the way that you are um, creating an atmosphere in a um a relationship with the customer, and I think that's really missed a lot of, you know, uh, too all too often.
1: Yeah, the, definitely, and that's I think it goes back, um, circling back to, are we trying to maximize revenue or build long term revenue? And if we are trying to build long term revenue, we'd be making different decisions. And so, you have to keep the customer customer in mind because a few thousand dollars or even a hundred thousand dollars at the bottom, you know, at the end of a one playoff game doesn't mean that you're going to make that money next year and if you would have put some fans in those seats or you would have charged a little bit better i think you know you would see a lot more long-term value so in the end are you really making money and i think that's you know the million dollar question
0: yeah no I, i mean and i think like we you see the example of the atlanta falcons um and some of these and then if you look at the um, success of a lot of the minor league teams, then mm-hmm. you'd see that the answer is like, well, if we do better by the fans, we do better as a business. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and it's something I hope that we continue can continue to encourage, you know. And, and as we've started started the conversation talking about the A's and some of the stuff they're doing, you know, that's what I'm hopeful to see is that, like, you know, they have they encourage more people to come and spend money because they are treating them more fairly.
1: Sure, and I think that goes back to a lot of the transparency and the fairness. And instead of trying to maximize nickels and pretend you have sellout streaks and um, you know, put all this PR out there um, or even cannibalize your market for a few more sales and you know, kind of tick off your season ticket holders. Is it better to just come out here and say, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going instead of taking a season ticket calling it a membership, which is the same exact thing, pretending that's marketing, um, try to maximize every dollar and try to fight the secondary using their data. It's just been a, a, a messy relationship from the beginning. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with not understanding you know, the, the end game, really.
0: Yeah, well, now I know we've kind of gone a long way here, and before I let you go, I want to ask you about what's up with SweetHop, right? So, um, because I think what you have is an interesting business model, um, and I think it's um, you know a little bit more uh, unique than a lot of people are used to uh, dealing Mm -hmm. with, you know. So, can you describe what you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. SweetHop we're a marketplace um, for luxury boxes, suites, and some of the the mini boxes, lowes boxes, and those types. Um, but we're not a secondary site. We're more of a, think of us more of Expedia, um, Airbnb or an aggregate where we don't own any inventory and most of the people who host on our site don't, um, necessarily own inventories in the form of being a broker. Now we do have some brokers, but they are sanctioned by the teams. You can't just call us and say you want to list tickets. Um, most of our inventory comes from partnerships with teams or venues or companies that buy suites that are looking to offset costs because um, at the end of the day, companies are similar to fans where if you're buying at a busy arena, it's very hard to manage 200 events a year and it's very expensive. So they're trying to offset costs. And so we're trying to fill that gap here, kind of the same, um, I guess, same setup as the secondary where because we're selling nationally, we have great marketing. We can cross sell within the market. Everybody who buys from a baseball team we can try to sell concerts at the arena or football tickets, you know, so that whole um, retail concept is still there and how we market and how we sell and how we have a little bit better budget and better data. Um, but it's also new um, as you and I have discussed at length, the premium market in, in sports and is, is really taking a, a hit lately. Um, my personal opinion is a lot of it has to do with, you know, it, being almost more transactional of the business and so um, or making it a transactional business when it's not treating it like it's a regular ticket sale and so we're trying to fill that gap where we're providing information online which you can't buy a suite online at any team you can't buy it online at any primary and so we're backing that with really good service we're backing that with the ability to qualify leads um, and we're backing it with the marketing and Um, sales reps that can really work with the customer and and figure out what they want. So hopefully we're finding a niche. We're signing on partners often. We have a a ton of teams and venues. And once people kind of hear our pitch, they're more inclined to understand that we're not um, really looking to flip tickets. We're just, you know, Expedia. We're looking to list products across the country. So
0: no, and, and let me let me make sure I have this correct, just so in case anybody's listening and they are kind of confused. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason somebody would work with you is because you have the capability of helping them manage their inventory, mm-hmm. um, helping them move it out through your relationships and your in your ability to identify and target customers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a relationship, not a transaction. Is that correct? Is, is that
1: correct? Yeah. said it better than I did and a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> every, now and yeah. then I, every now and then I get it right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 100% right. I think that's it. I mean, I probably went into a little bit of the technical aspect of it. But, yes, that's um, there. there's not a lot of competition out there. Um, if you go to any team or venue website or even primary, um, you can't just log in and buy a suite. Half of them, you can't find the information. It's very um, cryptic for whatever reason. Um, the inventory is severely distressed. We're seeing a lot of folks start to renovate into smaller, I call it easier to sell because I'm not a huge fan of chopping up suites. I personally have been doing this for a long time. I think there's a huge market for suites still. It just might not be the way that the teams or rights holders want them, which is people writing you a half a million dollar check. Um, there's still plenty of companies that entertain, And so what we're trying to do is fill that gap. And I think, you know, I know where the future of where premium seating is going, Um, just helping this distressed inventory so you don't have to make decisions where you're not building any suites or renovating them and making a ton less money.
0: Yeah, I, um, you know, and I think to go back kind of like some of the threads throughout our conversation, I think as far as premium seating and premium sales and marketing goes, um, it's really just a sort of a lack of cognizance on the way that you, you aren't your customer Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: so that you aren't marketing in a way that, that uh, a, you know, that company, that corporate buyer is going to want to buy. It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily always express the value. Um, In a lot of cases, the service level compared to what other uh, comparable purchases would be is is not there. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, you know there's a combination of these things and that's what leads to some of this a lot of this distressed inventory mm-hmm. and you know I do think there's a great opportunity if I, if you were to ask me where is the greatest area of opportunity I would say probably in premium seating and premium experiences because you know as we've seen as consumers and as marketers people want experiences as much as they want stuff now and what's more of an experience in a once-in-a-lifetime concert, uh, game, um, you know, event of this kind. Because even if it's uh, someone who, like share or you 2 who plays the same set every night, it's still the only time they're ever going to be playing in that room with that collection of people um, in the audience. You know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And, and I, so I, I believe that there's a great deal more opportunity in selling that kind of thing. and. Mm-hmm to not maximize it and well not to recognize it and then to not maximize your efforts around how unique everything is. It's a missed opportunity.
1: Sure. And that's a, I think it's a huge problem in the industry, especially because premium can really drive that ancillary revenue. And I've been fighting this battle for a decade now. And, um, I don't know if it's, it's just to the point where there's more important aspects of the business, but concerts, um, teams make a ton of money off that ownership groups, crush it when they sell concert inventory because they get to keep all that money. It's not revenue shared. And so anytime you're cannibalizing that inventory or you're not selling it or you're taking it down and taking all the profit out of it, which could be catering, um, it could be you know one of a hundred things, whether it's even as simple as parking, that adds up. I mean, you make that money and it doesn't go into the pot. That's how you run your business. You don't share it with the players. You don't share it with the league. It's your money. And so when you take a look at what is that value to a team or ownership group, it's huge and we're ignoring it. And, you know, we're in this battle where the promoters don't like you promoting suites because they don't get any of the money. They want to sell the tickets, but this is how we make money. And it's, it is messy and I get it. But at the same time, if you're missing out on a $5,000 suite where people are going to spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars in catering because they're a business and they're entertaining and, they'll go a little bit crazy on the budget, you're missing out on a lot of money um, that goes right into the owner's pocket. And I think that's a huge problem. And so anytime you make these decisions, there has to be long-term you know, health like we've talked about with ticketing. But also you have to look at, hey, can we sell these? Um, how can we get help selling these? Well, I, you know, I talked to someone the other day of business that they're, they're going to do a football suite. They're buying it off of us. And the reason they need to do the football suite is because that's how they can get all their customers to show up. If they take them to a football game, if they try to do a dinner, they try to do anything else, nobody cares. But if you say, hey, bring your family to a NFL game, they'll all show up. We're going to have food, drinks. It'll be great. And so it works. You need to do it better. And we're just an outlet for that. And we do do it better. So um, hopefully we, we continue to grow. Um, and, and start to really build the premium side of the industry, which I still, deep down, deep in my heart, I believe in it. So I think we're going to get there.
0: Well, I think deep down in our heart, no, no matter what people might say or think about us, I think the reason that either one of us continues to do some of the things we do is because we understand the, um, the power of the experience of sports and live entertainment and um, the community that kind of creates itself and coalesces itself around a team or a concert or performer or an event. Um, you know, and, you know, and to me like seeing a lot of empty seats or uh, underused inventory, it it hurts me because I know that like as much as anything, you know, we need these communities and we need these, these shared communal experiences more than ever. And, you know, so, um, you know, and I know you, sh- you. You share a very similar belief, and you know, mm-hmm. I want to thank you for taking a, a whole lot of time with me today. Um, how can I, how can people find you?
1: Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, MJ Guff, Mike Guffrey, easy to find. <laughs> Google my name, you'll find me. But that that's the easiest place. I'm, I'm on there a lot, and I love it, and I love to network. So, come look for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you, that's right you you're not hard to find
1: <laughs> no no, not at all you're trying
0: to a ticket a ticket uh, Twitter, if you will
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those people who I've just given up on protecting my identity from the evil Facebooks and Googles of the world just to steal and say, "Hey, take all you want, put it out there i I gave up, so you can find me, search my name, come right up
0: <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's exactly right. I'm there to be found. <laughs>
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure that we'll we'll do this again, which is the nice thing about me having my own podcast. Um, But again, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. I enjoy this stuff. You know that. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon.
0: Once again, I want to thank my guest, Mike Guffrey from Sweet Hop for taking so much time to talk with me. I think that it was a really good conversation. And I think there's probably a lot that we all can learn. I know that I've already re-listened to it once before. As always, I want to tell you that if you want to find out more about what I'm up to, go to my website. That's www.davewakeman.com. You can see my blog, where I blog pretty much every day about marketing, strategy, and how you can increase your market share, revenue, and competitiveness in your market. You can also find me on Twitter, where I'm at David Wakeman. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Um If you're so inclined, send me an email. That's Dave at DaveWakeman.com, where if you put newsletter in the subject line, I'm happy to sign you up for my weekly newsletter that talks about value, storytelling, marketing, and more. As always, if you like the podcast, I'd love it if you would go to your podcast platform of choice and subscribe. And maybe just as importantly, if you'd leave a review, this stuff adds up. It's very important to me. It's very important to get the podcast up in the rankings. So until next time, remember, thank you for being here. I'll talk to you soon.